Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is brought to you by Access Medical Education and supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity entitled Tenosynovial Giant Cell Tumors, Mechanisms for Improving Patient Functionality and Outcomes. I am Dr. William Tapp, Chief of the Sarcoma Medical Oncology Service and Associate Attending Physician in the Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, New York. Here is a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. Here is my financial disclosure information. Here are the learning objectives for this activity. Today we'll review the latest clinical advances and emerging evidence in TGCT while highlighting the relevance and integration of this new data into current practice. Tenosynovial giant cell tumor, previously referred to as pigmented villonodular synovitis, is a rare synovial tumor of the joints and tendon sheath. The exact incidence is not clearly identified in the United States or worldwide, but it is estimated that about 600 new cases are diagnosed in the United States each year. Patients who are often diagnosed are young adults. TGCT is a clonal neoplastic process that involves the overexpression of colony-stimulating factor 1 in the synovium. This is frequently due to a genetic translocation, for example, a translocation involving chromosomes 1 and 2, in which the CSF1 gene is placed next to the promoter of a ubiquitous collagen gene. With the expression of CSF1, you can get propagation of the neoplastic clone in an autocrine fashion. However, the presence of CSF1 can actually recruit reactive inflammatory cells over to the joint, which actually bear CSF1R receptors. The bulk of tumors that we often deal with in TGCT are actually these inflammatory cells, and they can include macrophages, giant cells, and osteoclasts. Tenosynovial giant cell tumor is a neoplastic process and not a cancer per se. Therefore, patients tend not to develop metastatic disease. It usually affects one joint in the body. It tends to affect younger and middle-aged adults of both sexes with no ethnic predispositions. Patients are usually diagnosed in their 30s and 40s, and patients can live long lives with this disease. For the most part, patients develop the diffuse type of tenosynovial giant cell tumor. They can get collagen deposition, subchondral bone erosions, and repeat hemarthroses within the bone. What this can cause is swelling, pain, and decreased range of motion, as well as stiffness. Most of this is due to the aggregation of the inflammatory cells that are recruited over to the joint, again, that bear the CSF1R receptor. Having this type of inflammation can cause functional impairment, narcotic use, and disability. So while TGCT does not necessarily threaten a person's life, it can really change the trajectory of their life by causing this disability and the use of medications to help with pain. For the most part, there are two forms of TGCT which we will talk about. There is a local disease, which is usually a nodular form encapsulated and almost often cured by surgery alone. This has very low recurrence rates with the appropriate surgery of about 6 to 14%. The majority of the disease which we will be talking about today is the diffuse type of the disease, and we'll show some images and examples of this. Patients with diffuse disease tend to need open and complete resections, but even with open resections, such as synovectomies, the recurrence rate can be high, approximately 40%. 
There are also patients with the diffuse type of TGCT that are not amenable to surgery due to the extent of the disease and the morbidity that surgery may actually convey. On the next slide, we actually saw the different types of TGCT. And again, it is important to know that patients with the localized nodular TGCT are cured almost always by surgery alone. They are not the patients that we will be talking about in this presentation, especially when we talk about medical management. There are extreme cases of this disease, though, that may not be resectable, and these patients could be considered for medications. On the flip side, most of the time when we're talking about the use of medications and the types of surgeries later on in this talk, we will be talking about the diffuse type of TGCT, which is represented on some of the images to the right. Many surgeons talk about this disease as operating in mud, meaning that it is really infiltrated within the joint and can be difficult to encapsulate or resect with clear margins. Most TGCT patients, as I mentioned, present with localized disease. This is about 90% of the cases that are documented. It's only about 10% of the cases that are actually diagnosed with the diffuse type of TGCT. When patients present, they often present with local joint swelling, stiffness, pain, decreased range of motion. They can have complaints of the joint locking, instability, or giving away. Ironically, patients can often present with pain within other joints, and this can often be due to compensation to the main affected joint. For example, if someone often has TGCT within the right knee, they can complain about left hip pain. Many patients actually get confused with having more polyarthritic symptoms, so it's very important to have the appropriate diagnostic procedures for the main affected joint, and this could be the considerations of MRIs as well as biopsies. There have been data looking at historical evaluations of tenosynovial giant cell tumors. There was a nice collaborative series They're looking at 294 patients that were evaluated before the use of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Again, they qualified the different types of tenosynovial giant cell tumors and importantly qualified the types of joints where we can see this disease. We can actually see tenosynovial giant cell tumors develop within any joint of the body. By far, the most prevalent is the knee, and then we often see them within the ankle and the hip. Other common joints can also be the elbow. One of the hallmarks of this disease is, again, the recurrence rates after surgical resections of the diffuse type of tenosynovial giant cell tumors is high. There is a wide confidence interval, but it is estimated that the recurrence rate can be anywhere between 40 and 60%, depending on where the procedure is done, which joint, and what type of procedure is performed. It is important to understand, though, that surgery still remains one of the main treatment strategies for patients with diffuse type of tenosynovial giant cell tumor. For many patients, it can be curative, and it can actually relieve significant symptoms for a good period of time. The next slide shows what patients with localized, again, versus diffuse tumor types can look at radiographs. On the localized side is a nodular form of tenosynovial giant cell tumor. Again, nodular, well encapsulated, and can be hopefully easily cured with the right type of surgery. Conversely, when you look at the diffuse type of the disease, you can see the extensive nature of the disease that may require anterior and posterior synovectomies and extensive surgeries that would not necessarily clear the disease. 
because of the extent of the disease and the fact that some patients have disease that is not amenable to surgery and to the discovery of the overexpression of CSF1 in the biology of this disease, there have been tremendous interest in the use of small molecule inhibitors or even antibodies that can target CSF1 signaling. There are drugs that are approved for other malignancies such as imatinib mesylate and nilotinib, which are weak inhibitors of CSF1. There is a publication in Cancer in 2012 that looked at 29 patients that were treated at multiple sites using imatinib mesylate. What you can see from the demographics of this patient population, it is very typical of the types of patients that we see who present with the diffuse type of tenosynovial giant cell tumor. A younger age with a median onset of about 40, a slight preponderance of women over men, and the majority of patients have disease within the knee. What you can see from the data is that the best overall resist response rate was approximately 18%. In other words, with drugs like imatinib, we do not see tremendous decreases in tumor size by resist. I will have to point out that this is a very diffuse disease and resist at a measurement is not always the best criteria to determine how well tumors are shrinking with the treatment. And what you can also see here is that some of the responses are durable. But what's also important is that even if patients don't have responses by resist criteria, they can actually have improvements in symptoms, especially in swelling, pain, and improvements in range of motion and stiffness. There was also a very nice prospective treatment done by our European colleagues looking at nilotinib in patients with diffuse tenosynovial giant cell tumor. In this trial, patients with advanced disease were given nilotinib for one year of treatment, and then the treatment was discontinued. Again, what you can see is a small overall response rate by resist of 6%. However, the responses were durable even with the cessation of drug. So even when the drug was stopped, many patients did not progress. It is difficult to know if this is the natural history of the disease or if the drug actually helped stabilize the disease over time. What's important, again, would be the measurement of improvement in symptoms in this patient population with drugs such as nilotinib and imatinib. But use of these drugs off-label can often be very good for our patients. We know the toxicity profile of the drugs. They tend to be very safe to administer. And even if we do not see dramatic decreases in the size of tumors by resist measurements, patients may actually get clinical benefit with improvement in symptoms. It is important to look at different measures of how a patient is doing while on treatments. Oftentimes, you can see improvements in range of motion. Objectively, this can be measured by goniometry by our orthopedic or physical therapy colleagues. And this can often let us know the impact that a drug is having on the patient's mobility and, in turn, quality of life. There's also been tremendous interest in developing TGCT-specific patient-reported outcome measures. There is a modification of the Promise Physical Function Scale specific to TGCT patients. This is an important scale that can talk about the health of joints throughout the body. Important for TGCT, as TGCT can affect joints in the upper skeleton as well as in the lower skeleton. There were standard questions that were modified after speaking with a significant number of TGCT patients to understand the implications and the impact of these questions on their life and how the disease can affect them. 
understanding how patients' symptoms are improved can really help us to determine how well our treatments are helping them. So as mentioned earlier, this tends to be a younger, healthy, working population who gets affected by TGCT. TGCT is not a malignancy that can affect the length of people's lives, but can definitely impact the quality of their life and their ability to perform their daily living activities or other activities and hobbies that are important to them. This is often caused by pain, swelling, decreased range of motion, and stiffness in a single joint that often requires repeated surgeries and or the use of medications and narcotics. It's important that patients with TGCT get referred to centers of excellence that have familiarity with TGCT from a multidisciplinary care aspect. This can often include orthopedic oncologists, now medical oncologists, physical and occupational therapists, as, as well as physicians who specialize in pain and palliative care. Treatment of symptoms, range of motion, and orthopedic issues alone can really improve quality of life for patients with tenosynovial giant cell tumor. When we discuss the surgical management of the disease, there is yet to be any specific guidelines regarding the appropriate type of surgical management. There is a very nice publication in Lancet Oncology that is looking at surgical practice in patients with advanced tenosynovial giant cell tumor. Demographics are very similar to what we discussed before. Interestingly and importantly, the majority of patients with the diffuse type of tenosynovial giant cell tumor had either one-stage or two-stage open synovectomies. A minority, only about 14%, had arthroscopic synovectomies, again, lending to the diffuse nature of the disease and the requirement to having open procedures to try to clear the extensive nature of this disease. What was also found is that the majority of patients do have high levels of recurrence and often require repeat surgical procedures, even with large open procedures. The reason, again, is that the diffuse type of the disease can be very difficult to clear with a single surgical procedure. When we look at the Kaplan-Meier plots, you can actually look at the recurrence rates of patients with primary treatment of surgery and recurrent treatment of surgery, and the differences between open and arthroscopic procedures. What is important to realize is that the recurrence in patients with primary treatment surgery is actually going to be a lot less than patients with recurrent disease. It is one of the main reasons why it's so important with the primary procedure to be treated in the hands of an orthopedic oncologist that is familiar with this disease and can discuss the goals of surgery with the multidisciplinary team. There has been a lot of interest, as mentioned before, in targeting the CSF1-CSF1R axis in advanced TGCT, the diffuse type, with medications. As we discussed earlier, some data between weak CSF1R inhibitors, such as imatinib and nilotinib, we can now switch to some of the stronger and more specific CSF1R inhibitors that have been moving into clinical trials. There have been early data with monoclonal antibodies as well as small molecule inhibitors. One of the small molecule inhibitors we've been fortunate to work with and develop with TGCT was actually PLX3397, which is now known as pexidartinib. Pexidartinib is a highly specific CSF1R inhibitor that is exceedingly strong. It is a multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitor, so it will also target such genes as mutant and wild-type KIT. There was a phase one clinical trial looking at pexidartinib in advanced patients with cancer. This had a typical 3 plus 3 dose escalation scheme. 
We bring on the dose escalation scheme to show some of the toxicity of the drug. What was seen with escalating doses were certain cytopenias, edema, as well as inflammation within the liver as noted by elevations in AST and ALT. Elevations in AST and ALT, as we will discuss, are very common with many drugs that target CSF1R. What was important in the phase one clinical trial is after the recommended phase two dose of 1,000 milligrams per day in divided doses was established, there was an exploratory extension cohort in a group of patients with tenosynovial giant cell tumor. What is seen here in the SWIM plot is the extensive responses that were noted in this small cohort of patients who had very advanced disease. Not only did numerous patients have responses, but the responses were durable as seen on the plot, some of which lasting over years. The updated data from this clinical trial, now almost five years after publication of the original data, is being worked on and will be published, but there are patients who remain on treatment with stable disease. If we look at the waterfall plot, we can see that there was a significant number of responses done by RESIST. As mentioned, RESIST is not the best measurements, especially early on, to determine efficacy by a response rate in this disease. However, it was striking to see a, a waterfall plot showing that over 40% of the patients were having a RESIST response. Importantly, several patients who had prior treatment with TKIs also had very nice responses. The spider plot, which is shown on the next slide, shows that many of these responses can happen very quickly, often within the first few months. This lends to the point that the drugs can actually block and decrease the inflammatory process, which can happen early on in treatment. The responses are also durable. What is noted in the left figure is looking at a special tumor volume score that was developed specifically to measure tenosynovial giant cell tumors. The tumor volume score has a partial response when we see 50% decrease in the tumor volume. And what you notice is when measuring the tumor volume of this disease, you can actually see a tremendous increase in the response rates, even when we have a high bar of response of greater than 50%. The next slide actually shows some of the changes that we saw radiographically and clinically. When you look at the objective response rates on MRI in the left-hand panel, you can see a patient that has an extensive tumor burden within the anterior and posterior aspects of the knee. What we show you in the above panel is the unidimensional measurements of RESIST. As you can see, RESIST does not nearly identify the extent of the tumor within the joint. The lower panel below that at baseline is showing the tumor volume score, measuring the volumetrics of the disease. What you can see over time, again, in a quick period of time of just two to four months, is a tremendous decrease in the tumor burden. This is not only allowing for a resist response, but also a partial response by the tumor volume score as well. On the right-hand panel is the depiction of a PET scan with a patient. The disease often has very tremendous and intense FDG uptake. This is, again, due to the inflammatory nature of the disease. And what is seen in a short period of time of just three weeks is a tremendous decrease in the FDG uptake of the tumor mass. 
And finally below is a patient who is actually treated on the phase one clinical trial. She had extensive disease within the right knee and there were suggestions of an amputation for her. However, with just four months of treatment, you can see tremendous response within the patient and improvement in clinical symptoms such as swelling, pain, and range of motion. This led to the development of the Enliven study. The Enliven study was designed to do several things. The first was to actually understand the efficacy of this drug. The other was to understand what is the natural history of tenosynovial giant cell tumor and what does the application of a drug where we could see significant shrinkage of a tumor in a patient mean to that patient? In other words, are we seeing improvement in clinical symptoms? So this study enrolled patients with histologically confirmed advanced and symptomatic tenosynovial giant cell tumors for whom surgical resection could be associated with potential of worsening functional limitations or severe morbidity. Patients were required to have measurable disease of at least greater than 2 centimeters by resist. They were randomly assigned in a one-to-one fashion to receive either pexidartinib or placebo. The pexidartinib was started at 1,000 milligrams per day for two weeks, and then patients were dose-reduced to 800 milligrams per day in split doses for 22 weeks. Alternatively, patients could be randomized to placebo. It was felt that the placebo group was important because we truly did not understand the natural history of this disease and needed to know that the effects of the drug were actually meaningful for the patients. Because a placebo group was involved in this clinical trial, there were two parts to the clinical trial. One was the randomization between pexidartinib and placebo. But after 24 weeks, all patients, regardless of what they were on, could then receive pexidartinib at their current dose. This would allow patients on the placebo group to then be able to enter into a part of the trial where they received open-label pexidartinib. What was also important in this study is we not only looked at responses by RESIST, so radiographical measurements by MRIs, but we also looked at the tumor volume score, as mentioned earlier, and then specific patient-reported outcomes, as well as subjective and objective measures looking at pain and range of motion were also employed into the study to understand the true worth of the drug. The primary endpoint of the study was the RESIST response rate at week 25. In total, there were approximately 120 patients that ended up being treated. 60 were randomized in part one to placebo, and 61 were randomized in part one to pexidartinib. As we'll talk about a little later, the study was stopped early. The reason was is that there was a case of mixed cholestatic hepatotoxicity that was identified. This put a hold onto the enrollment of the clinical trial when these 120 patients were already enrolled and only allow those patients on placebo who had already received pexidartinib to continue. We'll talk a little bit about this unique toxicity of the drug a little later on in this talk. Demographics were very similar to what we've discussed. Most of the patients by design of the study were required to have symptoms, either pain or stiffness or abilities with range of motion. Also, most of the patients were also using concomitant analgesic use when they enrolled onto the study. The next slide actually shows the waterfall plots of the best response rate, again, at week 25, which was the primary endpoint. 
And when we look at response, we see an overall response rate of approximately 39% in the treatment group, 0% in the placebo group. Importantly, when you look at the placebo group, you can actually see the natural history of this disease where we notice that no patients within a 24-week period actually had progression by resist. When we look at the tumor volume score, again, volumetric measurements of this disease where a partial response is defined as a decrease in greater than 50% of the tumor, we can see a significant number of patients, approximately 56%, had a partial response by the tumor volume score. Again, looking at the tumor volume score, we see very little, if any, progression or actually responses by tumor volume score in the placebo group. The next slide shows the response rates of the patients who are on placebo in part one and in part two received pexidartinib for 24 weeks. What you can see are very similar response rates by resist as well as by the tumor volume score. What is important to realize is that these patients started with 800 milligrams per day in divided doses as opposed to receiving the 1,000 milligrams per day in divided doses for the first two weeks. Since they have similar response rates, this is one of the reasons why the FDA-approved dose for pexidartinib is 800 milligrams per day in divided doses. The next slide shows a table summarizing the results of the overall and best responses by RESIST as well as the tumor volume score. Again, in part one of the study, which was the primary endpoint, what you can actually see is the overall response rate is 39% by RESIST versus 0% for a placebo. And the tumor volume score, the overall response rate for pexidartinib is 56% versus 0% for placebo. What was also important when we look at the secondary endpoints, looking at range of motion, promised physical function, and worse stiffness, there were improvements across the board in the patients who received pexidartinib in part one that were all statistical and clinically meaningful for patients. This is critical to show that the extensive decreases in tumor size that I mentioned in the previous slide were clinically meaningful for patients. There was not a statistically meaningful decrease in pain, but pain can be a very difficult endpoint to capture in patients with tenosynovial giant cell tumor. There are several reasons for this. First is that many times the majority of the pain is not only caused by the tumor bulk in patients with tenosynovial giant cell tumor, but it can be also due to the sequelae of the disease over time, the destruction of the joint as well as from prior surgeries. So even though a drug may decrease the tumor size in the patient and may have resolution of a TGCT-specific pain, patients still may remain in pain because of other types of pathology within the joint. The other thing is that many patients, even on placebo, had slight improvements in pain measures, and that is because they were coming to centers that had a disease management team that specialized in tenosynovial giant cell tumor, and they could benefit from palliative care as well as physical therapy consultations that would allow them to have better control of their pain over time. So a very difficult endpoint to measure in patients with tenosynovial giant cell tumor. Overall, pexidartinib in the Enliven study was well tolerated. There are some side effects that we typically see with this drug, as we can see in many tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Some of the side effects that were noted in high populations but lower grades in patients were hair color changes. This is a reversible side effect that happens as long as patients are on the drug.
You can also see some rashes, some edema, as well as some hypertension. Importantly, as mentioned earlier, we often see increases in transaminases such as an AST and ALT elevation in patients with the use of pexidartinib. This can be mitigated by dose modifications and interruptions and is almost always reversible. There were, though, as I mentioned, several cases of a more severe mixed cholestatic hepatotoxicity in which we also saw increases of the alkaline phosphatase as well as the bilirubin. It is uncertain as to the etiology of these type of changes, but in one patient, it was profound, lasting for many months and requiring liver dialysis. It is a type of a vanishing bile duct syndrome that can be seen, again, idiopathic in nature because we truly do not understand what causes this. This is the side effect that caused the data monitoring committee of the Enliven study to actually put the trial on hold after it was almost all accrued so we could look at the data of the total clinical development of pexidartinib. It is also what has prompted the FDA to have a specific REMS program associated with the drug to ensure safety and that both patients and clinicians prescribing the drug are informed to this very rare but potentially serious side effect. We will discuss this slightly later. Otherwise, most of the side effects that were seen on the trial were reversible and an early grade. The spider plot, which we have here, not only shows, again, the rapidity and responses that we can see, but also that the responses are maintained with the use of the drug and that with continued usage of the drug, you can see improvements over time. Patients really benefited with pexidartinib, especially those that were symptomatic and had diffuse TGCT as the study required enrollment. An example of an impatient with an extreme form of the disease is on the next slide. This is a woman from Italy who had been dealing with TGCT within the wrist for well over 10 years. The patient had over 20 surgeries and was dependent on red blood cell transfusions because of the inflammatory nature of the disease. What you can see is rapid decrease in tumor mass and redefinition of the joints and fingers after treatment of just several months. The patient continues on treatment today and has had a dramatic response. The next slide, again, just highlights some of the hepatotoxicity that I mentioned before. It is critical to understand the very rare toxicity of the cholestatic hepatotoxicity where you need to look for elevations in alkaline phosphatase when treating patients and discerning this from the type of inflammation where we see elevations of AST and ALT. The transaminase elevations are known and reversible and a normal toxicity that we often see with TKIs that target CSF1R. The cholestatic hepatotoxicity is different and a very rare toxicity that needs to be discussed when discussing the pros and cons and the rationale for this drug in patients with the diffuse type of tenosynovial giant cell tumor. After the Enliven study, hexadartinib received FDA approval for patients with tenosynovial giant cell tumor. It is the first in-class drug for this rare disease. The recommended doses is 400 milligrams twice a day on an empty stomach until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity. Because of the presence of the mixed cholestatic hepatotoxicity, although rare, many experts are making the decision to actually start at a lower dose from 800 milligrams and titrating up based on safety and need. 
The warnings again are hepatotoxicity as we discussed and embryo-fetal toxicity. The most common adverse reactions, again, as mentioned, are increases in AST, ALT, hair color changes, fatigue, some cytopenias. The NCCN guidelines has recommendations as a category one for the treatment of tenosynovial giant cell tumor. The cholestatic hepatotoxicity can be serious and cause potentially fatal liver injury. So due to the risk of the hepatotoxicity, pexidartinib is available only through a restricted program under a REMS. The REMS program requires that prescribers must be certified and educated about the drug, the disease, as well as this rare hepatotoxicity. Patients must also enroll in the REMS registry. And pharmacies who dispense the drug must be certified and dispense only to authorized prescribers and patients. There is also some very specific hepatotoxicity monitoring. Patients need to get liver function tests, including an AST, ALT, total bilirubin, direct bilirubin, and alkaline phosphatase in a GGT prior to initiation, and then weekly for the first eight weeks, and then every two weeks for the subsequent month, and then every three months. The drug should be avoided in patients with pre-existing increased serin transaminases, total bilirubin or direct bilirubin, or patients with active liver or biliary tract disease, including increased alkaline phosphatases. Patients have to be careful taking with food that may increase the risk of hepatotoxicity, as this can sometimes increase drug exposure by 100%. The drug should be withheld or dose-reduced or permanently discontinued based on the severity or type of hepatotoxicity. It's important to monitor liver tests weekly for the first month after rechallenge. So I'd like to just go over a brief case report of a patient that was treated on the phase one trial with pexidartinib. This was a patient with diffuse tenosynovial giant cell tumor. 15 years ago, he underwent a left total knee replacement. The pathology was consistent with TGCT. 13 years ago, he developed recurrent disease, pain, and swelling. 11 years ago, underwent a left anterior synovectomy. 10 years ago, residual disease was identified with progression, worsening pain, and swelling. The patient had decreased range of motion and underwent an anterior and posterior synovectomy followed by radiation. Then over the last 10 years, the patient had over seven procedures at various times due to worsening disease and symptoms. The MRI, which we'll show shortly, demonstrated large multifocal masses consistent with tenosynovial giant cell tumor, as well as multiple bone erosions. The patient had a PET-CT scan, which showed multiple FDG-avid soft tissue masses. The CT component showed extensive tenosynovial giant cell tumor in the knee with extra-articular nodules and adjacent subcutaneous tissue. The tumor displaced but did not encase the popliteal neurovascular bundle. So on exam, when the patient presented to a medical oncology clinic, he was wheelchair-bound and had significant swelling within the knee with decreased range of motion and constant pain. Range of motion was 0 to 60. There were several palpable subcutaneous tumors. Due to the prior radiation and the extent of the disease, a CT-guided biopsy was performed. The cytology showed atypical rare giant cells, and the core was consistent with recurrent tenosynovial giant cell tumor. An MRI with the sagittal T1-weighted images are depicted here, showing the extent of the disease. The following slide shows the PET avidity of these tumors and the extent of the disease as mirrored by PET scan. 
And then the CT scan, not only depicting the prior joint replacement, but also the extent of the disease, specifically more discernible in the posterior aspect of the joint. The patient did very well with treatment and had tremendous shrinkage of the disease and improvement in symptoms. It is very important to make shared clinical decisions to understand the risks and benefits of a drug. Again, patients can be younger, and even the risk of rare but significant toxicities are important to discuss. Understanding all options, not only medically, but also surgically, are critical in making these informed decisions, and having the appropriate disease management team supporting the patient is very important. So in conclusion, the diffuse type of tenosynovial giant cell tumor is a rare and for some patients very devastating disease. Surgery again remains the mainstay of treatment, but for patients who often have diffuse type tenosynovial giant cell tumor are very symptomatic and not necessarily amenable to surgical resection, the considerations of medical management can be very important for them. Again, it is a critical for patients to be able to have multidisciplinary discussions regarding all options regarding care and the risks and benefits of treatments. So that concludes today's discussion. I want to thank you for participating in this activity. This activity was provided in partnership with Access Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.